Good evening, everybody. Um, I'm delighted to be here. Um, especially honoured uh, to be invited to London um, to the Meditatio Centre. Here is my first visit to this centre. <coughs> it's absolutely wonderful to be here. And I'm so pleased and delighted that Father Lawrence has made himself available for to introduce the book <coughs> and to help launch it here in London. And I'm so pleased that so many of you have turned out. Uh, I've spent the last five years working on the project in Ireland, came across in, in um, 2012, I think, and met Father Lawrence <coughs> to discuss the possibility of doing it in Ireland five years ago. And they have been five very productive and very fruitful years. And I thought, as Lawrence said, I would have retired, and, and that was it. I would be able to enjoy life. Um, I have worked hard at this over the last so many years, but I obviously also have enjoyed it enormously. It has been a labour of love. So, and I'm delighted that so many of you have turned out here tonight. So what, what I've been asked to speak for about 40 minutes, and the theme I've chosen is that meditation uh, can be a bridge to spirituality um, for children uh, in a secular world. So I'd just like to, to deal with that theme. And then I, I can talk more about the actual um, research itself, depending on what your level of interest is. You can ask questions afterwards. Is that OK? Um, so the, the secular practice of mindfulness uh, was initiated by John Kabat-Zinn about mid-60s, early 70s. Uh, and it has now become a worldwide phenomenon. And it achieved valuable and really worldwide worthwhile recognition over that time by removing the practice of meditation from its religious and spiritual roots. In other words, he introduced it on the basis that it, was, it could do good work in the world of medicine as an holistic, as a secular practice. And it is on that basis that it has been very successful around the world. So the mindfulness movement does not highlight the spiritual fruits of the practice. That's not to say that it denies them, but it simply doesn't highlight them. Um, but I think the popularity of mindfulness meditation in secular society uh, has made it just so popular and so acceptable um, in society generally and in the area of health and in schools and so on that it gives us an opportunity to actually promote the practice and point to the deeper fruits that flow from it. As Lawrence says in the foreword to the book tonight, over many years now, he says, the successful mindfulness movement has opened a door in education and many other social institutions towards a deeper and richer understanding of the spiritual dimension of the human and of all forms of human activity. And he adds that mindfulness itself, avoiding any spiritual language or interpretation, did not go through the door that it had opened. In other words, because the movement chose to avoid spiritual language, adults and children who take up the practice from a secular perspective, from that more limited perspective, are not necessarily helped to appreciate its deep spiritual fruits. And I think that's what motivated me to get involved initially. I had been meditating myself for um, maybe seven or eight years at the time that that started. I'm meditating now for about 15 years myself, and I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that the first 15 years are the hardest. <coughs> okay, so that, what am I saying? It never gets easy. It's, it's a discipline, uh, and it's something, but it's, it's a discipline that is absolutely joyful and brings very deep fruits. But nonetheless, it is a discipline. 
So and I thought it would be a great loss if children were denied that practice, were denied to understand that these spiritual fruits flowed from the practice. And that's what, what motivated me to get involved. So I have nothing against mindfulness as a secular practice. I'm absolutely in favor of it. But I would like also to point out the deeper spiritual fruits. And that's the approach that we take towards it in Ireland. So I'd like to spend a minute, because I think that, that um, mindfulness then opens that door and, and it gives us an opportunity to build on its success and allows us to point to its spiritual fruits in a secular society. So I'd just like to say very briefly what I understand by a secular society and what I understand by spirituality and children's spirituality. Charles Taylor has pointed out that secularization is more than a decline in religion in society, even though that's how it may be popularly understood by people. He notes that for many centuries up to recent times, European societies were predominantly confessional states in which the same people shared common religious affiliation, they subscribed to a common understanding of the prevailing political structures, you're very welcome, they shared a national sense of identity and readily agreed on acceptable norms in society and in the prevailing culture. The whole community, or a significant majority within it, shared a commonly accepted worldview across all of those areas to such an extent that they would not have been able to say which of those contributing factors, in actual fact, led to the establishment of that norm. So they would not have been able to say it was a norm established by religion or by the culture of society. It was simply a norm and everything was, was bundled together. And in fact, Charles Taylor describes that whole process as bundling. And he posits that in bundled societies, people do not make a distinction between the demands of traditional culture and custom and the demands of religion. But that kind of bundling has now become undone in Western secular societies. He talks also about a second, more localized kind of bundling, which um, has also been undone and would have been based on the local parish. The parish was a central part of the communal lived experience in confessional society. I grew up in Ireland in the 1950s, and that was very much a confessional society. <coughs> Within the parish, it was common for people to participate in a range of activities associated with their religious life. They were shared weekly liturgies, attendance at sodalities, volunteering with local charitable organizations such as Vincent de Paul and so on. And that kind of shared lived experience has also been substantially unbundled in Western societies, leading to a much more individualized sense of lived experience. It's no longer a kind of a bundled communal experience. And Taylor then argues against a simplistic understanding of secularism. And he urges us to pay careful attention to the changing conditions of belief and the construction of new images of the self and of society. These followed when humans developed the capacity to imagine living beyond the particular context in which they found themselves. He argues that these changes have led to the development of what he calls an ethic of authenticity. This ethic deems that each individual must find their own way of living. Each person must discern how to be true to himself or herself. While in bundled societies, it was enough to conform to the established norms, that's no longer sufficient when there is a plurality of worldviews. 
and this has led to a disassociation between individuals and the institutions of the churches. And all of these developments have made a tremendous difference to the way in which people understand and take responsibility for their spiritual lives. A key question confronting those on the spiritual journey in modern society is this. What are the sources of the deepest meanings in our lives? And I think this question has the capacity to jolt people from settling down into a kind of a, a comfortable unbelief and that it can act as a stimulus for real dialogue amongst those who are searching for meaning and ultimate truth. I'd like to say briefly as well what I mean by spirituality and by children's spirituality. Before designing my own study, I had to tease out the, under, the understanding of spirituality that would underpin the research. The word spirituality wasn't really very much used in society uh, up until after the Second Vatican Council. Um, spirituality, like other abstract concepts such as truth and beauty, they're notoriously difficult to define with any precision. Uh, Case Weiman, in order to describe the basic human desire for insight into the meaning of life, and Case Weiman is, is a Dutch uh, researcher into spirituality, he's devoted his whole life to the academic study of spirituality. Uh, he uses the expression primordial spirituality by which he means kind of prehistoric, primitive, or even aboriginal spirituality. And he says we need to talk about that because this type of spirituality belongs to the basic processes of human existence, beyond or prior to the type of spirituality as it is institutionalized in the religions of the world. In essence, uh, St. Paul used the word spiritual uh, in his own writings, and when he used it, he was pointing to a, a sacred as distinct from a kind of a materialistic world view, uh, to a worldview in which an intimate relationship with God was central to a person's way of being in the world. In bundled societies, spirituality would have been considered to be a subset of religion. Religion came first, and one's spirituality was an indicator of one's commitment to a life of prayer and reflection within that religion. However, in unbundled societies, this understanding falls apart. The development of an ethic of authenticity in society invites each individual to discern their own way of authentic living. In societies where there's a plurality of worldviews and a decline in religious affiliation, one might say, as Philip Sheldrake does, that spirituality has come to refer to the deepest values and sense of meaning by which people live. In other words, spirituality can be seen as that aspect of the human person, which we might call the human spirit, which, when awakened, can enable people to achieve their fullest, even transcendent potential. In this context, spirituality can be considered as an inner drive to live an authentic life, a drive that finds expression in all religious traditions, theistic and non-theistic, and, and in, in none. So a person of, of no faith can actually have a spirituality because there is this inner drive to live an authentic life, whatever informs it, and even if the person doesn't know exactly what informs it. 
This dynamic, this drive, can be described, as I say, in secular terms or in terms of a particular faith or tradition. And I think if meditation can be shown to awaken people to this inner dynamic, and I believe it can, then it becomes a very acceptable practice in a secular society, open to people of all faiths and none, and can even be described as a spiritual practice in view of this more contemporary definition of spirituality. I think that's important when you're trying to introduce a practice into secular schools. And for example, in Ireland, where even today, 95% of the schools are technically governed by um, the churches, mostly the Catholic Church. Um, 95% of the Irish population certainly is not Catholic. And therefore, the schools, even though they might be described as religious in terms of their governance structures, um, could also be described as very much secular in terms of the children and so on who are attending them and the parents of those children who, while they might nominally describe themselves as Catholic, um, it is nominal. They don't turn up for Mass on Sunday or other church services. And for these reasons, I, and, and I'll come back to this again, intention becomes an important feature of meditation practice. When I say that practice can be, can be practiced in the way that I'm describing in a secular society, um, intention then behind it can differ. Uh, in other words, if you're approaching it from a spiritual perspective or from a religious pr uh, perspective of a particular faith tradition, the intention behind the practice will differ, and I'll return to that later. Weimann observes that the challenge of spirituality is to respect the language of the earliest forms of spirituality. He says it's important to listen to the primordial language of the children. He writes, when we have the courage to listen to reality, to the growing interest in spirituality in the different areas of human life, then we would discover a type of spirituality that has the same structure as the primordial spirituality in the Middle East as has been described in the Bible, the same primordial spirituality as we have seen in the different forms of indigenous spirituality. And he goes on to say that the challenge of spirituality is this, to discover and to strengthen the primordial spirituality beyond the institutionalized forms of the traditional schools, but presupposed by them. He says we should respect and strengthen the primordial spirituality, both in its indigenous and its, in its secular forms. And I suppose in some respects people might find that strange to think that you can talk about a secular spirituality. But I, I, I posit that you can. I believe my research indicates that meditation has the capacity to awaken and nourish such primordial spirituality and that children can be encouraged to appreciate it and to give expression to it. But how do you give expression to this spiritual dynamic? How do we give expression to it in our lives? How is this innate predisposition made manifest? There's an academic called Adrian Jalel from Malta and he points out that studies of development and the origins of human life and human behavior point to the use of symbol at a very early stage of human development, long preceding the development of language. There was a really interesting program on the BBC about a week ago called Civilizations, which actually explored um, the the, some of that development of the earliest use uh, of symbol. He posits that the discovery of symbolic artifacts going back over 100,000 years 
uh, suggest that they are a material expression of something deeper and more abstract and can at least be considered as indicative evidence of the presence of a spiritual dimension even in our very earliest ancestors. He notes that while it is relatively easy to identify a spiritual experience as you were experiencing it, and we will all have experienced that at some stage or other, at the same time it can be very difficult to pin it down or to give expression to it in words. He and others, such as Jerome Berryman, observe that spirituality is both accessed and finds expression in not just verbal, but also in non-verbal communications. He considers that art, dance, music, narratives, rituals, meditation and contemplation can be considered as different media, which evidence how spirituality may be sensed and expressed in conjunction with other human dimensions. And he suggests that the development of spirituality in our earliest ancestors was spurred primarily through the creation and use of symbols. And he goes on to suggest that symbol might well be considered the primary language of spirituality in its contemporary uh, understanding. Of course, there's Saint, the Saint John of uh, the Cross, well-known saying that silence is God's first language. In other words, I'm suggesting that since the emergence of spirituality was pre-verbal, we should not be surprised to discover that the way it is accessed and its expression today can be non-verbal as well as verbal, and may even today be predominantly non-verbal today. We have seen that spirituality is now understood as a natural, innate, human predisposition uh, accessible to all. Yet despite that, up until the 1970s, it was considered that children couldn't actually be spiritual because it required a cognitive understanding that was beyond them. And I think like that, that really, well, there, was, there was a lot of writing around that time that stressed that this was so. But that is now seen to be utter nonsense. And what is widely accepted now is that children from the youngest age can actually experience spiritual. They have spiritual experiences, but of course, they find it difficult, if not impossible, to give expression to it in words. Even as adults, I think we would all find that our deepest inner spiritual experience is a very difficult thing to express cogently and accurately in language. So we've explored how difficult it is to define spirituality precisely, so it will inevitably be even more difficult to give a precise definition of children's spirituality. And for that reason, researchers have focused on describing the characteristics of children's spirituality. And there's one researcher here in England, Rebecca Nye, who did wonderful work at the, uh, around 1989, <coughs> the early 90s. And she focused instead on describing the, 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 she, what she called a common core characteristic of children's spirituality. She interviewed them about their spiritual experience, got them talking about spiritual experiences. And she identified a core characteristic which she called relational consciousness. She suggested that children have an innate capacity for relationship, which is the foundation of their relationship with themselves, with others, with all of creation, and with God. Other characteristics include a capacity for joy and wonder and awe, and a gift, the gift of imaginative wondering. 
Spirituality also manifests in children in terms of their imaginative search for identity and meaning and purpose. And it's important to emphasize that when we talk about children's spirituality, it doesn't appear or manifest itself as something extraordinary, but there is something that is very ordinary in the course of their lives. Um, Elaine Champagne has done a lot of work on studying children's spirituality in many. There's a society now called the International uh, Association for Children's Spirituality, which studies particularly the, the spirituality uh, of children. And a, a lot of people in that have described the kind of characteristics I've outlined as, as indicative of children's spirituality, down to the very youngest children, two, three, and four years old in, in preschool. My own research indicates that children from seven years upwards can give metaphorical expression to their spiritual experience uh, through the use, for example, of photo elicitation. And I'll come back and talk a little bit about that. I want to pick up on a point that, that Lawrence made at the start that John Mayne often mentioned, and that was that spiritual experience begins within, that it's personal experience. Um, but I suggest that in confessional states, uh, Karl Rahner argued that children's spirituality arises from within, from each child's own existence and experience, so he would agree with John Mayne. But I suggest that in confessional states, where the majority was conditioned to conform to the prevailing view, there was little focus on personal appropriation of meaning and personal spiritual experience was undervalued. The consensus today may be that in the Christian faith, that it's nourished by the three pillars of scripture, tradition, and personal experience. But in the confessional context, I think the emphasis, and certainly in Ireland, was predominantly on tradition. And there was very little discussion on our opportunity for personal spiritual experience. But I believe that's one of the things that meditation can provide for children. In the context of a secular society of individual seekers, personal experience becomes a vital element in the search for truth, albeit in a faith context ideally still informed by scripture and tradition. So meditation as an acceptable practice in secular society, including secular institutions and schools, creates a real opportunity for rich personal spiritual experience, both within and outside of the faith context. For a definition of spirituality in my own research, I turned to the concept of the true self defined by Thomas Merton. He saw the discovery of the true self uh, he wrote about it as follows. He, he said, it is underlying the subjective experience of the individual self. There is an immediate experience of being, which I think is a lovely way of trying to capture what cannot be said. And that experience of being is totally different from the experience of self-consciousness. In other words, we are more than we think. And when we experience this form of conscious awareness, which lies beyond self-consciousness, it's not merely psychological insight, but an experiential insight into our participation in being itself. In Christian terms, this true self can be understood as God's indwelling presence within us, as our being in God. Or as Richard Rohr expresses it, our true self is who we are in God and who God is in us. Uh, Gerald May observes also that it seems that meditative consciousness of the true self goes far beyond the individual person, as if it were a vast ocean upon which the person is a wave. 
The discovery and consciousness of the true self within is not conceptual, it's experiential. And as Rahner says, it's the unfolding of one's personal history that one simply realizes what one already is. When we experience this state of consciousness, this perceptual awareness of who we truly are, we no longer perceive ourselves as objects, but as participants in being. This is a very different kind of experience, which lies beyond the capacity of rational thought to describe. Children are capable of and do experience such insights, but will not, of course, be able to express it in philosophical terms. It's a different kind of knowledge, and most adults, let alone children, would have difficulty giving expression to it, uh, to their own experience of it. Nonetheless, in the silence and stillness of meditation, many children experience a sense of spaciousness within, which is ultimately inseparable from being. So in Christian terms, then, children's spirituality can be understood as that deep, albeit obscure, inner awareness of one's true essence, of the true self, of the reality that we are all beloved children of God. Now, I'll give some examples in a moment of how children gave expression to that uh, as I spoke to them. But just to say a quick word about the book before I turn to the fruits of meditation. There are four key features to the book. The first is that there is a distinction between the practical, pragmatic benefits of meditation and the fruits, its deeper spiritual fruits. The second key feature is that it gives a voice to the children, and Lawrence has mentioned that. The book is based on my conversations with 70 children from four primary schools across Ireland. And in those schools, they were schools by and large that were participating in the project that we had rolled out, introducing children to meditation. In some cases, they had been meditating for three or four years, uh, in, in other cases for a shorter period. But they had all had personal experience of meditation. And the book uh, sets out, whereas my research over the last four years was based on an academic study into that and trying to, what I wanted to grasp was how children spoke about the spiritual fruits of the practice in their own words. So even though I got a doctorate from it as a piece of academic research, the book is not a, an academic book. It's a very straightforward explication. It sets out uh, in a very accessible manner what the children have to say about their experience of meditation and its fruits and how uh, they can be introduced to meditation. The third feature is the main focus of the book, and that is a discussion of how the wisdom traditions and the Christian traditions speak about the fruits of meditation, and in particular what the children have to say about its spiritual fruits in their lives. And the final part of the book is a, a focus on the importance of personal spiritual experience in the lives of children, and suggests how it is possible for parents and teachers to speak to their children through things like photo elicitation and get them talking about that kind of experience. Contemplative psychology can help us to talk about the spiritual experience and the wisdom that arises from it. There's a branch of psychology called contemplative psychology, and it, whereas conventional psychology takes a profane view of the individual and posits that the body and mind are experienced as two different entities, uh, in the meditative traditions, body and mind gradually come to be seen as two experiential qualities of one human ex existence. So contemplative psychology, as a result, posits two kinds of knowledge, conceptual and perceptual, or you could call it experiential knowledge. 
And this arises in part because it views the mind as an element of the totality of, the ex of experience. So the wisdom traditions then regard the mental domain uh, as empirical. In other words, that acknowledges that not alone can we think about experience, but we can also experience our thoughts. Contemplative psychology then is distinguished from conventional psychology in the fact that contemplative psychology might be described as a first-person psychology because it takes personal experience into account, whereas conventional psychology simply views you know, the other thing that it is studying as an object uh, and excludes that subjective element. The wisdom traditions, including the Christian tradition, can be said to suggest that there are key, three key spiritual fruits to meditation practice. The first fruit is that meditation awakens us to the validity of personal spiritual experience. Because we experience it for ourselves, because something happens to it, because we, can, we intuit it, we experience it, even if we cannot describe it, it becomes something that we know in a different way. Um, in, a, in a way that is not conceptual, but is perceptual or experiential. Meditation generates a capacity to be comfortable. I suppose I, what I'm trying to say here really is that very often in secular society, kind of the scientific view of the world takes the view that if it can't be described rationally, it doesn't exist. And what contemplative psychology suggests instead is that when something that cannot be described in conceptual terms, it doesn't mean it's not true, it's simply transrational, whereas the scientific community would tend to describe it as irrational. But it is, in fact, transrational. Meditation generates a capacity to be comfortable with perceptual knowledge, with mystery and paradox what it might sometimes be described as not knowing, because it cannot be expressed conceptually. Perceptual knowledge can neither be known nor expressed with the same precision as conceptual knowledge. Language is implicitly dualist, and because of that it's inadequate for giving expression to experiential perceptual knowledge. Instead, such knowledge finds expression uh, through symbol and metaphor and art and poetry. Um, Yeats wrote once that man can embody truth, but he cannot know it. The painter Francis Bacon used to observe that the job of the artist is to deepen the mystery. Heidegger suggested that poetry is language in service of the unsayable. Isn't that a lovely expression? Poetry is language in service the, of the unsayable. And I think if you have a favourite poem, you will find that it speaks to you in a way that conveys an essence, a truth to you. Something from your own experience, something you have internalised and experienced for yourself that cannot really be put in words, and yet that the language of the poetry manages to do that. Heidegger also suggested that the vocation of the poet was to evoke the holy. So in ordinary language, words and concepts are never the thing they attempt to describe. We often make that mistake, and therefore we attack what somebody is saying. We attack the words that they're using, but the words and the languages are merely pointers 
Tony de Mello used to often use the expression uh, used in the East, which says that when the wise man points to the moon, the fool sees only the finger. So the finger is not the thing. It's trying to point to. So words of any kind are simply stepping stones towards an ineffable, indescribable truth that can be, sorry, can be intuited and can be experienced. So mysteriously, meditation shows that mystery can be known without being fully understood. So I'm saying that that is a, a key fruit of meditation practice, is that it brings that knowledge to the surface. It validates perceptual knowledge. And I think um, the prayer of John Mayen that we used at the start of the little talk here tonight of, of our meditation, that Heavenly Father, open our hearts to the silent presence of the spirit of your Son. Isn't that a beautiful description? The silent presence of the spirit of your son and lead us into that mysterious silence where your love is revealed to all who call and that love that is revealed is a kind of non-conceptual intelligence it's an awareness of the true self of one's intimate relationship with reality with god with love with the ground of all being and an understanding that it can be experienced can be acknowledged, it can be understood perceptually, but it cannot be described. A second key fruit of meditation is that it improves our clarity of perception. Because thought is the only thing that moves in meditation. Every time we return, and it is about returning, as Lawrence said at the start, it's a process of returning to our word. We realize the compelling nature of our constant, futile mental agitation. Every time we return, Cynthia Bourgeau says, every time we return to our word, it's like doing press-ups. And we know from experience that the more press-ups you do, you strengthen the, the muscles in your arms. And it's the same thing here. You, you are strengthening a, an imaginary muscle, your attention muscle, every time you keep returning to the word. And that helps you brings you deeper, deeper inside yourself all of the time. Meditation helps us to realize that we can distinguish between seeing our thoughts and being caught up in our thoughts. Tony DeMello once said that the beauty of an action comes not from its having become a habit, but from its sensitivity, consciousness, clarity of perception, and accuracy of response. So meditation mysteriously, by I don't know if it can be described properly, but it actually, by making us aware of our preoccupations, because they're going around and around in a circle, and we let them go and we return to our word, and then these preoccupations come back to us. And we begin to realize and to understand at a very deep level that these preoccupations, these concerns, these worries, color everything that we see and do. We don't realize how our conditioning blinds us but as it begins to fall away and our preoccupations begin to decline, we begin to see more clearly. I think the example of the Good Samaritan is a very good example. Why did the Samaritan see what the priest and the Levi couldn't see? And part of it, I think, is that the priest and the Levi were conditioned by, of all things, their religion. Their religious beliefs and their religious commitments 
something, you know, the Bible doesn't say why they passed, but there was something. They felt they had to be somewhere more important. Maybe they, they were launching a book. Maybe they had to, to give a talk. Maybe they had to go to temple and do whatever. Maybe they couldn't get their clothes dirty because of where they were going. Who knows? But if they had seen what was in front of them, instead of reacting out of their conditioning, they would have responded to the need of the moment. And meditation mysteriously has that effect. It gives rise to clarity of perception and accuracy of response. And I think that um, the third key fruit is effectively then a kind of emerging of the first two, because together they bring about, uh, uh, they transform, transfigure our, self of, our sense of self-identity so it no longer becomes based on the ego, but becomes based instead on our understanding of who we truly are, on the true self. And therefore, the place of meditation, which we often think of as a place we go to in meditation, the place we retreat to for peace and quiet, but it actually becomes over time a place from which we look upon the world in a different way. Um, and it becomes a place from which we, we see reality in a new way. And I think from a Christian perspective, when that happens to us, we understand at a very deep level Teilhard de Chardin's expression that while we think of ourselves as human beings on a spiritual journey, we are in fact spiritual beings on a human journey. Are you familiar with that expression? Mm. We often think of ourselves as human beings on a spiritual journey, but we are in fact spiritual beings on a human journey. And I think meditation brings us around to that way of seeing. So I think that these three fruits might be summarized by saying that meditation inspires a new way of seeing and being in the world. It begins with a new way of seeing, and once that develops, then we behave differently in the world as a result. And it happens mysteriously through the silence of meditation. Now, I'd like to finish up by talking for a few minutes about what the children themselves said. In order to talk to the children, I used a photo elicitation. Um, because I, I've described the difficulty of getting, you can't walk into a, a child. I, I discussed this with 70 children for an hour each in two half-hour interviews spread three weeks apart. Uh, it took me almost a year to get it done in the four different schools. Um, how do you, you, you don't sit down to a child and say, you know, do you think has meditation improved, improved your spirituality? <laughs> so how, how do you talk to children? Uh, so what I used was, I, I used I, two methods. The first was photo elicitation. I simply developed 30 photographs, ordinary scenes. Um, for example, one was tropical fish uh, on a coral reef, you know, a Nemo-like situation. Uh, another was a bud beginning to blossom on a, an apple tree in spring. Another was a beautiful red rose with, with um, drops of water running down it. Uh, I had a, a traffic jam. Two girls in a break between choir practice hugging each other and smiling like crazy. A boy pulling his, his hair out. Uh, a beautiful bounty bar type scene, a beach and beautiful waves. A lovely walk in through a green forest. A burned forest. Uh, pollution arising from Chernobyl-like factories and so on. Just, so there were a variety of images. 
um, many of which reflected ordinary life situations, another of which I, I took a, an Irish artist called James Lawler, and without his permission, I just robbed some of his images from online. Uh, he hasn't, I, I've written to him recently to know could I use them publicly, but he hasn't gotten back to me yet. They're beautifully imaginative images, like uh, three fairy-like creatures rising through, through water and so on. <laughs> And I asked the children to look through. They were given a page, an A4 page, laminated photograph. They were given 30 of them. They were asked to go through them in silence and pick out three or four that reminded them of meditation. So let me give you one or two examples. Some people would have picked the one of um, the uh, fish under the water. So my practice then was to say, well, you know, just pick one of the four. If you've picked that one, you describe to me what's in it. So at least I knew now what symbols they were referring to if they, they said they chose it for a particular reason. So a lot of them said, well, you know, I love it. It's just so joyful and colourful. It's really, really beautiful scene. It's just, and I, I find when I meditate, I, I'm joyful. I'm filled with joy and it makes me really happy. So you can see there was a sense with, without actually asking them anything particularly. I would have been open the interviews by asking them things like, if meditation was a colour, allegorical questions, what colour would it be? If meditation was a journey, where would it bring you? Just kind of unusual questions. And then on to the, the photo elicitation. So that from that, but other children from the, the tropical fish one would have said things like, well, uh, not alone is it... Um, is, are the fish happy and joyful? But like, they can just be themselves all day long. Now, what does it mean to a child to be himself? Isn't, this, isn't there something powerful in that? And something powerful about the notion that however organized, have you ever wished you could simply be yourself? How many of us who are working, you know, nine to five or whatever, getting up at seven and not getting home until seven, and you just wish you could be yourself and not, not have to be responding to all of these things. And I think the children meant it at a very deep level as well. And I was fascinated by the fact that I had chosen Thomas Merton's concept of the true self as my understanding of spirituality. I mean, I hadn't said that to children. I'd like you to know before this interview starts that this is my un underpinning my view of spirituality. And yet, I was surprised how often things about being yourself came up in the, the conversations. Um, there was a, a second example, and then I'll go through the fruits as the children describe them. There was a second example of uh, the, the, the blossom on the tree. One young girl looked at it, there was a bird actually sitting on the branch. I, I don't believe I had noticed the blossom when I, when I started. And she said, um, I chose that one, she said, because the bird is still. And in meditation, I'm still. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, but when the camera takes the picture, you know, you don't know whether the bird was moving or not. It takes it so quickly. But I didn't say that to her. But she said, not alone is the bird still, but that branch is a living thing. I was fascinated by that because I hadn't seen the branch when I chose it as a living thing. And she said, I'm a living thing. And she said, can you see that the, the blossom is just about to, to bud? It's as if, she said, its spirit is blossoming. I thought that was remarkable because here, just from an image, just so, so metaphorically, she was giving expression to something, I believe, coming from deep within herself. And as the interview went on, that became clear. 
So does that give you some idea of how the different images, now you'll have to, to read the book to understand a little bit more, but most of the images are on the website. And the website is christianmeditation.ie. When you go to the children's section, you'll see there's a lot of resources there for anybody who's trying to introduce meditation. There's a whole range of timers there for children, one minute, two minute, three minute, four minute, simple introductions to meditation, and so on. So very quickly, there were four things that the children said that they summarized as the fruits of meditation. They said, firstly, that meditation can help you to be yourself. And I've hinted at that already. And I think, I believe, from, and there are plenty of examples in the research, and many of them included in the book, that indicate that I believe that comes from a, deri a very, very deep level within themselves, that they were talking about how it, it, it brought them in touch with who they truly were. I t Pamela was 11, with the girl who chose the branch. Uh, in fact, she was the second girl who chose that one. And she said, I see a bird looking into the sky, and it's thinking, why don't I go out there and show them who I really am? That was her way of, of looking at the, the same image, not as poetic, but at the same time deeply meaningful to her. And she clarified, as many children did, that meditation made her realize I can be myself, I can accept myself for who I am, and I realize it's just really nice to be me. So they talked a lot about peer pressure, coming under pressure to conform, you know, wanting to be like the cool girl or the cool boy who leads the group, and realizing that in actual fact, meditation helped them to understand that temptation and to let go of it. Jack said, 11 also, sometimes when I'm angry or upset, I don't feel like I'm the real me. But then I meditate and I find the real me. Isn't there something lovely about that simple understanding? So he discovered in the silence of meditation a sense of who he truly was beneath all the noise and bustle of daily life. Nora, who was 10, said meditation made her realize, when I meditate, I feel more me than I ever did before. Helena was seven. Now listen to what Helena said. And if we have time afterwards and somebody asks me, I can tell you about Helena and her sister who sat together at opposite ends of an empty wardrobe to meditate. But I don't have time to go into it now, but if people are interested, I can tell you more in the questions and answers. Helena said, when meditation is deep in you, now isn't that a lovely way of putting it? Instead of you being deep in meditation, she said, when meditation is deep in you, you feel like you are somewhere you've always wanted to be since you were small. She was seven. <laughs> I just, like, I, there were times when I almost went down on my knees and thanked God for the privilege of listening to, to what the children were saying. So meditation develops in children a deepening sense of self-presence and of attentive lived awareness to their own lived experience and it gave them the courage to be themselves. The second key fruit, as, I de as the children described it, and these were things the children used in their own language, meditation helps you to feel the goodness inside. Isn't that a lovely way of expressing what, what is almost inexpressible? They became intensely aware of their own inherent goodness. Sophie said, meditation helps me to be more aware of the goodness inside me. Jack said, when I'm angry, I don't feel the goodness inside, but when I meditate, I do. Lucy said, when you're not doing meditation, you sort of have a, a snap inside you, as if you're always getting ready to snap. 
But in meditation, the goodness comes out, and the bad feelings disappear, and the goodness flows in. Derek said, he was nine, that meditation releases kindness in you and makes you feel more open-minded. And Barry expressed the same idea somewhat differently. He said that sometimes people act badly, forgetting that they are really good on the inside. So meditation, he said, helps me to understand that if someone is behaving badly, there's still goodness inside them. And he said, if they meditated, they might realize that for themselves. <laughs> but isn't that a powerful insight for a young person to, to be able to put into words? Very insightful. Lucy said that meditation brings her deep inside yourself. She said, normally you don't pay attention to your heart. But when you're in meditation, you don't use your brain. Instead, you're realizing what's inside you, what you are inside, and you are your heart. Isn't that a beautiful way Lauren started off talking about head and heart as well tonight? And I think in what she said there, she captures beautifully what I described as the subtle distinction between conceptual knowledge and perceptual knowledge. She's suggesting that in meditation, she doesn't engage in conceptual thinking, but she is aware that knowledge, perceptual knowledge, somehow arises within her. Uh, her feelings surface and make themselves more intimately known in a way that might be described as primordial or perceptual. Uh, Duran also amazed me. She used a very simple example. She said, when you meditate, you discover things you didn't know. It's like a secret garden that you don't find, even though you walk by it every day. And then suddenly, one day, you discover it. It's a hidden part of you that nobody knows about, not even yourself. Then one day you just come across it, but you keep it to yourself. You don't really tell anyone about it. It fills you with love and hope, but it's hard to explain. And I think that was true of a lot of the children, a good many of the children. My last question always after finishing up the second interview was, um, you know, are you glad or disappointed that you came to talk to me? And the vast majority said they were delighted they came to talk to me. And many of them said things like, because it's so good to talk to somebody who gets it. So that they had experienced something, and even their own teachers you know, didn't really know how to talk to them about it. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. And there's a section in the book to help parents and teachers to talk to children. I'll go very quickly through the last two because I think those two are the most important. But they, they expressed both of those maybe in a different way by saying that meditation brings you closer to God. There were various ways in which they gave, uh, they, they said that. When I meditate, Ella, Ella said, nine years old, when I meditate, it feels like me and God are connected. It feels like he's giving me loads of love. I can feel his love. She also went on to say that at night, she dreams she's meditating, and she dreams that God is sitting beside her, meditating with her. Isn't that a lovely? Uh, um, uh, Natalie said that uh, when we meditate, we connect with God, and I take a few minutes not to talk to him, but just to be with him, to feel close to him. Derek, nine years old, said, when I meditate, I feel a certain stretching inside of me. It feels like a light shining on me, all over me, like the light of God through a window, like God is telling me something. And that stretching, that growth, there's something happening. And he was able to give expression to it. Adrian 
felt his sense of being connected to God in meditation was strengthened by the fact that they all meditated together. I should stress that. Like the way we're rolling it out in Ireland is that we, we train the teachers over a two-hour in-service and then they introduce it to the children. And effectively, every child in the school, when they take on the practice, at least twice or three times a week, every child in every class meditates at the same time. Now, when they get more used to it, the older ones might meditate for a little bit longer. Uh, but they build it up to maybe five or six minutes for the whole school. There's something wonderful about walking around a school that is in complete silence, when it is usually so filled with noise and bustle. Adrian said, it feels like everyone is one. It feels like no one is around you, as if everyone is where you are now, and God is in the presence. I think I mean, that's a poetic description that we all experience when we meditate together as a group. I thought he captured it beautifully. The final thing the children said is that meditation made them a kinder person. Lena said, when your mind is full of worries and troubles, it's like you're locked in a cage and you can't get out. But then in meditation, you begin to feel free. I thought it was powerful. So the, the, what amazed me was that the photo elicitation actually seemed to really enable the children to give metaphorical expression to a deep kind of primordial spirituality. Jason said that meditation, he felt, was pushing him in the direction of my inner person towards what I should be. Meditation feeds you in a spiritual way because it helps you to think about the person you should be. Now, I think that the subtle language of the children indicates how meditation leads them to a kind of insightful knowledge which inspires them to respond rather than to react to situations they encounter. There were many examples of that as well, but I don't have time to go through them all here tonight. So, from the children's point of view, meditation deepens their self-awareness. It awakens the heart of the child to the true self within, which they said in their own expression, it was meditation awakens them to the goodness inside. It nourishes their spirituality and it um, inspires them towards authentic, compassionate living. Two things to say briefly. I mean, I think, I, I hope I have sufficiently made the link between, the, you know, got across the point that meditation has the capacity within a secular society to, to actually cover all the bases. In other words, if, if you're sitting, if you have a class of 30 children in a school, and if, if so many of them um, follow the their parents' traditional spiritual faith, go to service or mass on a Sunday or whatever it may be. If they're Muslim or whatever that faith tradition may be. Or if they are Buddhist, you know, non-theistic religion, but nonetheless a religion at the same time. Um, you can have, and, and, and children who don't have any faith or any belief. I think it is true of all human beings that we desire to live an authentic life. And that that inner dynamism, however it is described, that gives rise to that, can be described as the person's spirituality. And you can have people sitting in the same room, um, all meditating. And they could be doing it from eight or nine different traditions. I said at one stage that um, intention is an important aspect of meditation practice. So can I finish up by teasing that out and then I tell you what Jason said, which completely stumped me at the end. 
Intention is important. So let me just distinguish between the secular practice of meditation, um, meditation, say, from a Buddhist or non-theistic perspective, a religious but non-theistic perspective, and then meditation maybe from a Hindu or a Christian perspective that believes in God. In the secular practice of meditation, now there's a chart at the back of the book that teases this out in more detail, but from a secular practice, from the point of view of intention, you might say that meditation is person-centred. You might say it's self-centred, but I, I wouldn't mean that to sound selfish. The person initially takes up the practice because somebody has said, well, this is very relaxing, this is good for you, this will make you feel better. So in, in essence, it is about me. It's about improving my own health and well-being. So it's person-centred or self-centred. Meditation from a Buddhist perspective or a, a, a non-theistic religious perspective is other-centred with a small o because it looks beyond the individual and it is practiced for the good of society. So Buddhism has, uh, as well as uh, the kind of meditation practice that we do sitting in silence, they also have loving kindness meditation and other forms of meditation. So it is seen very much as a practice that is not just for the good of the person and individual human flourishing, but also for the flourishing of society. So instead of being person-centered, it is, or self-centered, it is other-centered with a small o. And from a Christian perspective and a Hindu perspective, it is other-centred with a capital O, because it is effectively seen as centred in the ground of all being. And that when we meditate, we are reminding ourselves how we are grounded in that participation in being grounded in God. And therefore the intention, as in the Christian tradition, is to be still and know that I am God. To be still and know God in that perceptual way through that kind of personal spiritual experience that is also a communal experience so that meditation in that sense can be said to be other centered with the capital O so the intention of the person meditating is very important but in a secular society people from all of those backgrounds can meditate together and they can accept that there is huge benefit in the practice